I, didn't want right, to I got one more in a different space that I think Sam will love. Uh, but, you know, Sean, I, Sean, I told you about this book I read about vertical farming. And, uh, you know, basically, like, I read this wait a book. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys just were talking about crypto stuff. And then he just said, I've got something I think Sam will like. Farming. Yeah, Am I that know. big of a redneck to you? I like it, too. <laughs> I feel like I can rule the world. I know I can be what I want to. I put my all in it like my days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. All right, we have a special guest on the pod today. Furcon is here. He's my old co-founder. Uh, probably the smartest guy I know, uh, especially tech-wise. So we talked about a bunch of things ranging from his last company, AppLovin, which just went public at a, I don't know, $20, 30000000000 billion valuation. So we talked about, you know, the humble beginnings of that and how, and all the way to a massive IPO, uh, what he's doing with his money. Uh, you know, so you win the lottery, what are you going to do? And he talks about his new project that he's building out. And then we talked about a bunch of cool things that he, um, he shows me. So every, every week we do, a, I do a call with him called the cool shit hour, where I just sit there on video and I just say, Hey, show me cool shit that you're interested in. Cause he's like a total, uh, you know, tech nut. He's on the the bleeding edge of everything. And so that's my hack to learn a bunch of things before they go mainstream. And um, so he talks about, you know, some hardware stuff that he's really interested in, like a brainwave measuring device that he's wearing. He talks about crypto. Uh, and then we talk about vertical farming and uh, the future of that. So a bunch of cool topics on that side. I would say there's some part of the crypto stuff that might be over your head. So too many terms, acronyms, stuff you don't know about. Here's my advice. Uh, Two, two ways you could still get value even if you don't fully get it because, hey, I only half get it. Uh, Furkan's usually 10 steps ahead of me. And so what I've learned in knowing Furkan for like almost a decade now is when he thinks something's interesting, instead of just saying, ah, I don't understand that, that's weird, uh, lean in. Go Google it later, look it up. Uh, you know, if I had just followed a bunch of the things he was interested in, interested in I would have made a killing uh, investment-wise over the last decade. And I've learned the hard way that that's what I should do. The second thing is, uh, he shared a bunch of general advice about how he went about his career, you know, college dropout, um, choosing jobs that weren't the highest paying job and why he chose it, what he kind of optimizes for. I thought there was some good stuff in there. So if you are not subscribed to this podcast, if you're just listening to this podcast, maybe your friend told you about it, you know what you need to do. Open up the podcast app, Apple, uh, the iTunes app, or open up uh, Spotify. On Spotify, you click follow. On the Apple Podcast app, you're going to click subscribe. We are climbing the charts. I think we're number 12 in, uh, in maybe business or investing category. And we are breaking into that top 10 and we're not leaving when we get there. So how do we do that? Subscribe. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you get value out of it. Just hit the button. That's all you got to do. Hit the button. Thank you. So Sean and I are both wearing Harvard shirts. I actually planned this. I saw you a screenshot of you testing, oh. and I went and grabbed my Harvard shirt. I was about to go on this big, like, what a coincidence. Uh, this is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> no, I uh, I do have one that I wear, um, but I saw you were wearing it, so I wanted to... Uh, I wanted to wear the same thing because we normally wear black T-shirts. Yeah. And, you know, for the record, neither of us went to Harvard, uh, but we both do this thing where we'll wear Harvard stuff and then people will be like, oh, Harvard. <laughs> and then you respond. You're like, miss that campus. Love it. Love it. there." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and you went yeah. on a tour and they actually went to Harvard. <laughs> yeah. 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 They're like, oh, you wet? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I got a Groupon. Yeah. It was lovely. Was it? They uh, showed me around. Oh, four. 
oh, yeah. cool. But I was, yeah. we almost overlapped. It's like, I don't know. I was just there for lunch, but, uh, yeah. Oh, wait, was like, were you there at noon? Uh, <laughs> Furkan's uh, even better. Furkan didn't even finish college. So Furkan yeah. is, of all of us, he's the most, he's the smartest and most successful one. And he was smart enough to drop out after what, freshman year, sophomore year? Uh, I was there for a couple of years. Uh, I mean, I tried to do, I went to San Jose State. I tried to do computer engineering because obviously that would have made sense. But uh, I was running a company at the time. And every time I was deciding between electrical physics or on the phone with somebody trying to make a deal and, you know, you know which one won. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you want to give a background, Sean, of Furcon? Because uh, last time he was on, we were way smaller. Yeah, uh, Furkan is one of my best buddies. He was the guy I started my last company with, or was co-founder, CTO. So, you know, most co-founder pairings, I would say the most common one is one guy who can build and one guy who can sell. And that's kind of what we were. It's like, I'm, I'm more like the sales guy and he's more the building guy. And uh, so, yeah, we worked together, I don't know, six, seven years, sold the company uh, a year and a half ago. Furcon braved it out and made it one full year at a big co- corporation. So I got to give him props for that. That's like a, you know, an endurance challenge for you. Um, but yeah. now, now he's now he's doing his own thing. So he's got F dot Inc., which is how do you describe it? Uh, it's uh, I just want to build cool things with cool people. So that's what I'm focused on. Uh, that's really it. Uh, I would describe it as, you know, if you're trying to start something, you want like a third co-founder. Uh, it's an interesting emerging tech idea. Uh, that's where I get excited and I want to put in time and money uh, and incubate these things with you. Bye. I'll, give, I'll give a different description. I'll give my, my view of it. Sweet. Basically, uh, Furkan is investing in himself like 15 years ago, whoever is that person. So if you're like a young engineer and you want to make some shit happen and uh, man, it'd be kind of helpful if you had somebody who's been around the block, who's done it before, who can either give you money, advice, Build, actually get in the code and build with you. And so he's got this disc, it's kind of like Y Combinator. He's got this discord group and every single company is like, I don't know, like a 23 year old engineer, they get their own channel. And then basically on some of them, Furcon's actually like the backend engineer with them. On some of them, he's like the tough love investor. Who's like, dude, why aren't you focused on growth? Why are you talking about all, all this other bullshit? And in some cases it's like, uh, oh, you, you need to move to San Francisco and like live on my couch. I think you've done that with a few engineers of like, Literally come here, sleep on my couch, and I'll like not just seed fund you, I'll like fucking babysit you and incubate you literally and physically in my apartment. I I want to spend some time actually discussing that because I want I want to like reminisce a little bit, but but first by the way, we gotta congratulate Furkan also. He his he since he's come on, his last company, uh App Lovin IPO'd um I don't know what what is it at now. It IPO'd close to thirty billion dollars. So you know, yeah, I was gonna say we we have to give that part of the story, which is Furcon co-founded a company that is currently publicly traded for twenty billion dollars. Yeah, uh, Furcon's which rich is, is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> so that's like yeah, a pretty yeah, important. Yeah. Although it looks like you guys did you guys just do an earnings? Something happened today where your stock just plummeted. Well, not plummeted, but went down uh, a fair bit. Um, yeah, I don't know. I mean, it's just, all tech stocks are getting ravaged right now. Um, yeah. But, you know, so, yeah, so congratulations. Like basically that company, you guys were supposed to sell it for also like a huge amount, like three billion or something like a couple of years ago. And it and it and it failed. And then it turned out to be a blessing in disguise, it seems. Well, well you should ex- you should explain that. That's a good story. So we're working yeah. together and Furcon's like, dude, like I got some good news. And he's like, you know, my last company, we're going to sell for 
we're going to sell, uh, they're going to sell it. And I think it's, I don't know what it was, 1.4 billion or something like that, right? That, that's what the original sale price was? Yeah, I think they put a 1.4 billion value. Uh, I think the terms were something like they're going to put in a billion dollars and the value would be at 1.4. They're going to buy a majority of the company. Right. Uh, most of the early employees would have gotten liquidated unless you're working there. You would have gotten kind of whatever new grants. Right. Uh, Which would have then, been an amazing outcome anyways, right? Oh, wow, oh, you yeah. built a company, 1.4 billion. That's, you know, that's a win. That's a grand slam. But then something happened. What happened and how did that work out in your favor? Yeah, so the company was an international company. It's a Chinese company. And 2016, uh, the elections happened. And, you know, politics kind of changed a little bit. And I think in that process, like, it started looking like, man, this is, like, not going to go through. Like, they're not going to be able to get approval in the U.S. for a foreign entity to kind of buy this thing. And uh, so that happened. And then there's some time, you know, in every contract when a sale happens, there's, like, all these triggers, right? Like, hey, got to complete by so-and-so date. If it doesn't happen, then, you know, whatever the contract might end. And I think in that time, I mean, I wasn't at Apple and I was working with you, but, you know, every time I talked to somebody there, they were like, dude, we're still crushing it. We're growing and it's still kind of scaling up. And so it looked like the deal was not going to happen. The company had like multiplied in value during that time. And so now there's like all this leverage on the company side to be like, well, we don't actually need this sale, right? Like we're a lot bigger than what that value was. And I think they turned it into an investment instead with like non-voting or you know some some kind of distinction there. And we ended up getting some liquidity then, which was fantastic. It was like over a billion dollars, like felt great. I felt like that was the exit. Um, felt like that changed, you know, kind of what I could do in my life in terms of where I spend my time. Um, but then they just kept growing. The company kept building and uh, they continued down the path. They partnered with uh, KKR. And, you know, brought on, I think Harold is on, you know, kind of the executive team now. and He's a seasoned vet in the industry and they've just continued just to kind of, you know, skyrocket. And uh, I don't know. So so now to, 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 to dumb it down, App Lovin is basically uh, like they, you guys helped invent advertisements that you see in the middle of iPhone games, correct? Yeah. So we started as an ad tech platform. That's when I was there. And, uh, you know, then after that, they brought up you know, kind of a the gaming side. So they have a gaming studio, which generates a lot of revenue. Uh, if you think of them as like almost like a first party game creator now, that's where I think the company has gone uh, in the and last couple bought, years. They bought Machine Zone, right? So they, they acquired a bunch of studios. They have their own studio. So they're almost more a gaming company than a mobile ad network now. So that's kind of crazy. But the funny part is, I remember you telling me like, oh, you know, we kind of did this sale. Then a piece of paper is going to go sit on someone's desk Trump comes into office and now, you know, I think it was a Chinese company, a Chinese company is buying this, anything that's over a billion dollars. I believe there's some rule that it has to get like, you know, a certain type of approval for the transaction to go through. And then it just sat there for like, I don't know how many months, six months, nine months, something like that. And then when they came out of that, he's like, yeah, by the way, like we kind of get the best of both worlds. They made, you know, their buyout turned into a minority investment. So we still got the money, but we get this free roll of great. How big can we build this? And then fast forward a few years. And it goes public uh, at like we just kinda twenty skipped, times the value, you know. We just kind of skipped over something pretty amazing, which is he kind of was casual about it. You guys both were basically. You built this ad network that was doing wonderfully, a huge company, and like I, I, I'm going to say it in my, the same way, but basically, you saw which games were doing cool, and you go, "We're just going to make games kind of like that and make them popular because we already know what's popular before even the people making the games know what's popular." And now you make all your revenue from making games. I mean, that's pretty astounding, right? 
Yeah, I mean, um, I saw all of this from the outside, but like there are some key players in the company that I think were really instrumental in this. So there's this guy, Rafi. He like, when when I, you know, when we kind of created Apple Oven, when we were working on the products before Apple Oven, uh, this guy was just like somebody Adam knew. He knew his brother. He had worked with them before. He was like this 19-year-old guy. He's not going to go to college. He's, you know, all he wants to do is like, do something big and play video games. So like he spent all day, all night playing Street Fighter, but then he would talk to every single kind of Japanese mobile gaming company all night and he would just grind and it was an awesome environment. I mean, I'm kind of like the person where like, if I get really excited about something, that's all I want to do. That's all I was doing at the time. So I'm at the office, Rafi's at the office. You know, we spend all night, I'm hearing his conversations. I get pumped up about it. And then kind of during the day, we're building all these things. And you just saw people everywhere in the company that, wanted to do something big and went and got it. So Rafi, I think at some point in this ad network was like, oh, I, need, I want to build games. They had built this thing called Lion Studios within Apple Oven. I don't think it was very big at the start. Like it was kind of like some small games, but you know, Rafi, I think he probably gets a lot of the credit to like kind of spearheading that and like just wanting to do it. And, you know, when I looked at the S1 and kind of like dug into it, it's like, I think it's like half the business now, you know, the, there's obviously details on how you determine where the business is, but I think it's like half the company, which is incredible, right? Like started with this ad network and then, you know, in two to three years, kind of at towards the end of, of this going public era, you now have kind of built up the second part of the business is also math. So. And you, and the guy who started Apple Oven, I mean, it was a, a few of you guys, but like the main guy, his name's Adam, right? Yeah, Adam. And basically he had like a... I don't know if it was mild or, or very successful outcome at another thing. And didn't you say that he put in like $4 million of his own money, which I don't know if that was a lot or a little to him, but uh, a pretty substantial amount of his own money. And you guys kind of like dicked around for like two years, like toying, <laughs> like you would say that like, well, let's try this. And it didn't work. And you're like, let's just go play video games and think about it. Or like, it, like, wasn't there like something like that? We're like, oh, we'll figure it out. Yeah, I mean, Adam, John, and Andrew were like the three co-founders that like, they had worked together before. They had some, done a couple of other companies that did well. I mean, John is like, nobody knows John, but John is like, he worked on the first ad server on the internet. I believe that got picked up by DoubleClick and, you know, kind of that went on to Google. And then he worked at like VMware. He had done all these different roles. He's like technical, but then very marketing focused, very product focused. And, uh, you know, so it's like, he was just an interesting person to have in the mix. And then Adam is like, he had already kind of, you know, he started, I think, in equities trading in the Chicago Stock Exchange and then gotten into, you know, ads and marketing. And then they had built a company, I believe it was called, ah, man, I can't remember, they said Gamefly or, you know, so, something like that. And it was like probably a really good outcome, but then not where, you know, it wasn't like a massive outcome where he's like, oh, I can retire forever and I can, you know, like, this is all I want to do. And I've kind of made it. And in the first couple of conversations with him, I remember walking down uh, University Avenue with him and he was just like, you know, I want to make something so big that I can walk down this street and people would know me. And it's like University Avenue in Palo Alto, for people to know you, you must have done something like really big, right? It's like every who's who in tech walks down there. And I was like, okay, yeah, I want to kind of like take a really big shot. But the, them three put in the initial funding. I think it was like around four or five million bucks, if I remember correctly. But it was a lot in the sense that it gave us many years of runway work on whatever we started with one project called style page we did that for like nine months that was kind of like pinterest we really quickly realized we're like you know five dudes in like palo alto with no fashion sense trying to build a fashion website this is not going to work very well yeah uh, like a, a, you know just wranglerjeans.com it's that easy that's your website where you go exactly. to shop you don't, you, and, you don't uh, need a pinterest board to find lee jeans 
Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and uh, and then we make, messed around with a lot of different ideas and some of them weren't very good. And I think, Sean, we, we dealt with this a lot, right? Like you get excited about something because you have to come up with an idea. You make it, you're not really that confident with it. Before you even launch, you're like, this is trash. I don't, I don't even want this anymore to get it away from me. And so there was definitely some of that. Yeah, but you, you had the, I think one of the things worth mentioning is that you, which I think it's worth mentioning because I remember every time I built a company, I'm always like, well, this is just how I'm doing it. It's probably real wrong, but like, I don't know, the smart people probably do it this other way. And I remember you, I remember feeling very comforted when you told me like, yeah, at App Level, we went through nine ideas. You know, is it this? Is it that? Is it this? Is it that? And like, you know, some false hopes of like, oh, it kind of works. Oh, no, it's not going to work out. And then in between, you're like, yeah, there were some days we just came into the office. We didn't have the idea to work on. And so we just played FIFA for a bunch of hours and we would go eat, talk, come back, play some more FIFA. And then we would go home. And like, there were days, like weeks like that. And I remember thinking, all right, that's probably not the, like the method you should choose. But like, it reminded me that like success is not so glamorous. Like, you know, they show in the movies where it's like, oh, I have the idea. I'm a visionary. I got it right away from day one. And then we work hard and we just A, B, C, D, E, it's done. You know, and so um, I don't know. Is that a fair representation of what you what what you experienced? Yeah, it's definitely nonlinear. I mean, you can work really, really hard for a long time and feel like you've made zero progress, and you could be doing all the right stuff. You could be making the right calls, and the other challenge is you don't know. Like, you don't get feedback right away on the things you're doing or are good. I mean, you get customer feedback, but you don't get this kind of meta feedback that like the general type of things I'm working on are going to kind of work and hit and. Uh, I mean, style page was kind of one idea that we really dug ourselves into that everything between style page and then app love and the ad network was just like, you know, it's just like kind of really small projects that you're not super confident about. You're trying to find some edge. You're trying to learn something. And, you know, mobile was just getting big. Android was getting big. There's some opportunities there, but you just don't know, you know, it's like how VR is today. You're like, I believe this is going to be a lot bigger in the future. What is exactly what people are going to do? It's really hard to predict. And when you tell somebody, they usually go, nobody's going to do that. Like, well, if nobody can predict these behaviors, how do we build them? You have to have this kind of like blind conviction towards something and also like get that right. So it's like, yeah, it a really luck. Hard. yeah you, need, you definitely need some luck. You got to pick the right thing. This so, guy, Adam, how do, you say, how do you say Adam's last name? Farugi. So Farugi, Adam Farugi, he's the CEO now. And from what I've read about him, I don't know him. He seems like a wonderful CEO. Like the Glassdoor reviews are great. He wins all these awards. He seems like a lovely guy. I've seen interviews with him. And then, but what you're describing is like a bunch of really like relaxed, calm people. Just like, it, it, I'm, I'm kind of dismissing it, but not really. Like you guys are just kind of messing around and like uh, yeah. trying to hope to, yeah, hmm. which isn't, of course, that's not the reality. But how did this guy go from being, this like kind of relaxed, calm dude, just trying to hang out and find a hit to leading a $20 billion publicly traded company. I mean, when I look at him, he looks pretty polished. He looks like a good, good guy. That, that's like a pretty amazing transformation. Yeah. And so I, I think re- relax is probably the wrong, the wrong word. I mean, we were intense when we played FIFA. It was like, I'm going to beat you eight <laughs> times in a row. It wasn't a casual game of FIFA, right? So everything was competitive and we would play mobile games competitively. That was a lot of our interest. Like app Lovin', when we started was actually an app where you could see what games and apps other people were playing in your social network. It was like kind of like a feed of apps. That was the first iteration of app Lovin', And it was because we just wanted to see what people were playing. 
because we wanted to kind of get those games and be competitive within it. So he's always been competitive. I think you really uh, see that in him. And but you, you know, also used to say way. like like Furcon's work schedule is like roll into the office at eleven, lunch with the crew, catch up on what people are up to. Just starts getting humming around, you know, does a couple meetings, starts getting humming around three, four. And then basically, like, by, like, 8 p.m. to 3 a.m. is when Furcon does his work. And then he repeats it the next day. And so for I remember in our company, there was a bunch of people who were just, you know, regular human beings that would work, you know, nine to five. And then they would go turn off their brain and go home. And, like, for some of them, it was really hard to have a boss and kind of like a leader who's on a completely alternate schedule. Some people were totally fine with it. They, they made it work. And then we recruited a bunch of like Rafi type dudes who were like, oh, cool. We stay up till 3 a.m. here. Like, great. That's my optimal schedule too. Like, I, I'm down with that. And so, but at App Lovin, you had told me that Adam was the opposite. He was coming at nine, leave at four or five, whatever. He's got like five kids, I think. And like every minute was efficient. Whereas I got to say, like the way you work, it's not that every minute is like, boom, boom, boom. I'm doing this, 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 this. Like, even at our company, we would take video game breaks every day at 4 p.m. We'd go play Super Smash Bros. for an hour, right? Like, you had very opposite styles, but you guys made it work. Yeah, I think Adam is, like, make every minute count. And you see that uh, in how he, like, operates. And that's why he's the CEO of a $20 billion company is because everything happens very fast, very efficiently. Uh, like, when a decision is made, the whole company knows about it. When the movement's happening, it's immediate. It's, like, make decisions fast be strong with your kind of movements, you know, outside of it, follow through with it quickly. Like those are qualities I think are really, really critical in a CEO. I mean, for me, it's like, I want to make obviously every day count. Like I work a lot when I'm excited about something and the Apple oven times was that when something's growing, I take it seriously. But, you know, I know that uh, creative work is like, it happens in kind of these moments of flow. If you get two or three good flow states a week, I feel like you produce a lot. And I think most developers or creative people or builders, they'll feel this. Like, not every hour is super efficient, but there's, there's these some times where maybe it's because you did all this stuff to build up to it or you got the right conditions. But if you hit like three or four of those a week, man, you're, you're really, you know, humming. You're producing a lot and a lot of impacts happening. And so I always focus on impact. And, you know, I think it was a good pairing because I would just work super hard to go and tackle the next like tech, technology barrier with my team. And then the next morning, Adam would just drive a bunch of traffic. By the time I rolled in at noon, it was like, we knew the <laughs> test worked or not. And you know, that was like awesome just to feel. The first time I've ever felt somebody like take control of growth and like literally say, actually, we're going to get this answer today. And obviously, if you have like, you know, a good bank account and you can kind of fund it, you can spend money to make your answers happen faster. We got a lot of cycles in, in those you know, times where we were building these crap apps. We didn't waste like, a year building some garbage app because very quickly we knew it wasn't going to work and why. And we tried all the variants of it and we got, we had like confidence that we were done with that idea. Like, Oh, we tried it. It's not going to work. We're not going to be lingering about this, you know? So let's switch to ideas. So me and you do a call every week. Um, It's one hour and it's called the cool shit hour. Every time I do it, I'm like, damn, I wish I'd recorded that for myself, but also people would love this. And so I want to do that basically now. You guys do this every week. Yeah, we've sometimes missed some weeks, but you know, yeah. I had a kid and stuff like that. But we've been doing it for, uh, pretty regularly for a couple – ever since he left uh, you know, Twitch, I was like, well, I still want to hang out and keep in touch. That's like the best part of when we used to work together was just shooting the shit about stuff that's cool. And because Fergon, in his own words, he told me this once, was like, I'm kind of in the first 10,000 people to try any new technology and like really dive deep and understand it. Because he does that, he just sees a bunch of cool shit before the mainstream does. 
And so my hack is, well, I'm never going to be as smart as this guy. I'm never going to understand technology. I'm not going to learn how to code, but I can be friends with him. And he could like explain it to me like I'm a kindergartner. Like, oh, I'm, into, I'm really into this right now. Check this out. Watch, watch this demo. Here, try this out. Here, open up this website. Watch this. And so we do that. And the, the thing with most of my relationships, including this podcast, I'm talking at least 50 plus percent of the time because I'm a talker. When I do the cool shit hour with Forgot, I'm like, I just sit back into my desk and I like take notes as like, oh, this is cool. And I only stop to ask clarifying questions. I'm like, wait, how does that work? So I want to jump into some of those things. So we'll keep it open-ended. I have a few that I know you're interested in. I can guide us there. But let's start with open-ended, which is what are some things that are just cool or interesting to you? It doesn't have to be like something you're working on necessarily, but where's Furcon's attention right now? What stuff has caught your eye? Yeah, I would say um, there's probably three major things. One is uh, in the hardware space, there's just, there's just this trend that I feel like I can't get out of my mind, which is, you know, commodity hardware, whether it's like a Raspberry Pi, kind of a simple device like that, or off-the-shelf gears and things like that, plus software like machine learning equals very advanced piece of hardware. Sam, do you know what a Raspberry Pi is? Yeah. Well, I I don't know what the application is, but it's basically like a $50. I don't don't remember how much it costs now. It's a $30 computer. It's like a little board. And it's important because now in a developer, previously they would have had to design their own little small computer board to go build a small, like, you know, if you wanted to build a Roomba, you'd have to go design a little computer to put in the Roomba, then design the Roomba. Now you can kind of go pick up this like, computer that's just a little board and you can put it into anything so like you know it took half your company away of what you needed to do to make this happen who makes then, raspberry uh, who it's makes a that? company called adafruit i believe um but they're they're like an independent company they're like probably one of the biggest obvious makerspace companies around um because they've you know i think they've sold like i want to say like 100 million of these devices now and so uh, they're just crushing it they're just they're, they're, it does so. well so, so wow. what's um what's an example of something that you or somebody has built with a raspberry pi just so people have a, a tangible example so like uh there's another device of this from nvidia i'm using the nvidia jetson it's like a little version of a gpu but i basically have a little gpu plugged into my tv it has a webcam on it and you know we've messed around with some like pose estimation so like you know you can open my TV and you could basically stand there and a little ball will come. And if you hit that ball, like it'll go blue or you, know, God, you made like a, a connect, like an Xbox connect. You yeah, just made like exactly. a bootleg version of it. And then we kind of did some hand gestures where if you, you know, we basically, I think that this, this, and then this, that's kind of like the three gestures. And we can kind of read that on the other side. And so, and he basically just put up like, you put up like a one, a two or a three basically, right? Yeah. And, and this was for me, like, you know, I like to go and mess around with it. My idea, if I wanted to do this as an idea, I would do like uh, the best fitness product would be you buy this little device. It plugs into your TV because everybody has a TV on their wall. Now your TV is this awesome fitness game. Uh, and you could just do like everything. I think I wanted to call it like fit cam or you know, something like that. But uh, instead know, of like that company that sold to Lululemon for like 500, 600 million dollars. Mirror, I think, right? yeah, exactly. It's mirror a is huge, like $2,000. Right, a huge piece of hardware for thousands of dollars that you have to mount onto your wall. Well, you already have a screen on your wall called your TV. What if you could just turn it into something smart? That's one of the, like for $30 instead of $3,000. Kind of Dude, I have, a, I have like a mirror competitor called Tempo. I pay 50 bucks a month for the programming and then two grand for the machine. Oh, yeah. And it's basically a flat screen TV with a, they don't call it a camera because they don't want to freak people out because like you work out, like I work out shirtless in my underwear basically. So <laughs> they don't call it a camera, but they call it a sensor and it could like tell you if you're, are your poses in good form or not good form. And uh, it counts your pose, it counts your reps so you can compete. Pretty cool. 
Yeah. And so that's one. I'm going to tell you about this other uh, company. I invested in them, but I'm I just really, really excited about it. So I'm going to tell you guys, this company called Neurosity, they make a brain computer interface. So this sounds like future, but it, it's now. It's basically a device, and I actually wish I had it next to me, but you just put it on your head. You can go and, get it if you want. I want to, I want to see it. If, it's, if yeah. it's within the room. Yeah, go, it's not go within the room. Okay. It's in the other That's room. Right. So. Okay, go, go for it. Me and Sam will just talk for a second. Yeah. Right. So, It'll be good for YouTube. Sean, you know how you know how on talk shows, like uh, morning shows, they have a guest come in and they're like, here's the latest products that you can buy for your kids this holiday right. season. And they're at a table and they go, this product is this, this, this. And they yeah. set it down and they go to the next one. <laughs> That's what Furcon is right now, basically. It's that segment where someone is just like, as play like eight cool things on the table and they're just going from thing to thing to thing just dropping yeah. bombs and i'm like oh great cool got it next you know what i mean yeah. that's what's going this, on right this now. is uh fvc this is furcon's qvc competitor where he just picks up objects and is like this is a fantastic holiday gift for the family <laughs> yeah yes. and so this is for you know kind of like developers and whatnot still but this is what the device looks like and uh, i'll kind of give you guys a closer look but you can see these little uh probe looking things so this oh would basically gosh kind of rest on your head like that. And what this does is it listens to EEG waves happening in your brain. And I think there's many different wavelengths, but you know, these guys have identified some set of them. And so why, why does this kind of relate to the story we're talking about? There's a little computer that's inside here that, you know, like wouldn't have been able to happen 10 years ago. And so because you could put a little computer here that has Wi-Fi on it, that can take these signals in and transmit it to the internet, this device is viable now, and you so, can. So, so you you wear that, and it helps measure your like what focus or your kind of are you in flow state? It's, it's kind of like a, a Fitbit in some way for your brain, or what? So the device itself first takes in raw signals, so it can detect a lot of stuff. They've added some machine learning, right? So the second part, they added software, and they pre-programmed all these different actions. So there's some stuff like, are you focused right now? Are you calm right now? Uh, kind of things like that. Are you going to enter a sleeping state? Right. They can detect all of these conditions, but there's other things that I'm really excited about uh, where it can detect uh, if you think about like pinching your left hand, like if you think about doing this action, but don't do it, it can pick up that signal. Or if you think okay, about so moving your hand, your right arm, it could pick up that signal specifically. And so, you know, you could think of this as both a receive state and detect things but also as an interface to kind of, you know, without having to move a muscle, just thinking about a muscle. Right. Change, the channel, change the exactly. channel without going and picking up the remote. So, so, this so is the guy who made this is like 17, right? Or 18? Um, I, I don't know his age. I think Very he's young. a little bit older than that. But yeah, you know, there's this guy, Alex, I believe he has a neuroscience background. And the CEO is this guy, AJ. Um, and, you know, what's funny is I bought this device as a person. Right. Like, I'm just like, I bought this device. I think I was probably in the first hundred or 200 to buy it. Um, and then I was like, I sent him a message. I'm like, I love this. I'm like an investor. Like, can I talk to you guys? And I don't think they responded to me. And then, um, then I joined, they had, they sent a message like, Hey, do you want to schedule like a like customer call? Like they were doing customer discovery. And I'm like, yeah. sweet. So I like joined this customer discovery call, do the whole thing. But then at the end, I'm like, dude, I really love this. Like, this is me. There's a bunch of stuff about me. I'm not some rando, but like, I'm like really excited about this. Like I want to invest. Like, and then he was like, still kind of like, okay, like kind of like aggressive in the customer call to kind of get this. But then we followed up after I talked to him and ended up investing a little bit of money into them. But I love these devices. I love these things where it's like small piece of commodity hardware. 
plus advanced machine learning equals potentially massive new output, right? Like, you know, and I can go into some random ideas on how I would use this, but I'll stop. So this is called, uh, we got to make sure we let everyone know. It's called Neurosity. So their website is Neurosity.co. Their website is so awesome. When I'm on this, (laughs) it okay, so it's basically, what this kind of looks like, it basically looks like a set of headphones, but you don't put it on your ear. You put it up on your head a little bit. It costs, I think, $900. And they claim that they manage your focus with music and that you minimize distractions and shifts your focus and hacks your flow. This is a brilliant website. I almost would buy this just because like, it looks so mysterious is the right word, maybe. (laughs) I mean, it's definitely something new and early. And, you know, when people say like, hey, we're going to manage your flow state, you always, you know, what do we all do? We kind of call bullshit on it, right? And you're like, wait, like, how are you going to do that? How are you going to hack my body, right? And so uh, you get a lot of snake oil in the world there, but this device, uh, it can for sure detect when I'm focused. It can detect when I'm calm at different uh, points. And I've programmed it to basically, like, when I have it connected to my computer, I can move my desktop around or, you know, I basically wanted to, like, see, can I open Brave Chrome, right? Like, can I open an application by thinking about something? And I can do that. That's miraculous to me. Like, that's, that's the things insane. you, like, read about in a book somewhere. And then it was in the Jetsons, maybe, but it, it, doesn't, it didn't really exist. Can so you really do that? So you can think to yourself, like, move the cursor and it works? Do you think it, move it? Do you think open Chrome? What do you actually think of to get it to happen? Yeah, so basically, uh, I programmed it to these kind of thinking of motor functions. So they have these pre-programmed, like, 40 or 80 motor functions, like push, pull, move your right arm, move your left arm, move your index finger. like kind of. And you, you don't move it. You just think about that. And then you do a little training step. So, like, it just tells you, think about moving your index finger. And then stop thinking about it. And so it does like a little <laughs> machine learning loop, like 20 iterations or whatever. And then, you know, again, this is a developer device still, but I can get it to run some arbitrary code when I think about my index. For example. Uh, gotcha, gotcha. Dude, and I'm so, so excited to give this to my dog or to like an eight. <laughs> <laughs> dog, go to sleep. Boom. Well, you we know? used to make fun of Craig Clemens came on here and he's like, Best idea. He had three ideas at the end, and his best idea was dog VR. And we were like, that's the stupidest idea. But this is actually better because uh, this would be like a way to communicate with a dog uh, if you could get the dog to train it. But you, I don't know. That seems a little difficult. Um, all right. For So that was the first one, which is cheap commodity hardware that now lets a software programmer like make hardware wow. without having sure. to have a lab and a, you know, physical material engineering, making motherboards and do all that stuff. All right. That's one, one trend. What are some others? So the second trend, I mean, we're all into this, but obviously the DeFi crypto world, there's just a lot of fun activity happening there. And I've just, you know, it's one of those things where you just see it happening and you want to be a part of it and you read about it and you're building stuff. But, you know, I was working with you and then I was working at Twitch. I hadn't really built anything in this space. And so, you know, just recently, I would say the last six months, I've just been writing, you know, Solidity code, trying to think about what kind of applications to build, what's interesting. And my entire view of everything is there is these massive hype cycles. Then these hype cycles go away, which is obviously what happens, right? When kind of this massive hype happens, then there's a stopping point there where the real building begins and the real value would be created. And all of these kind of industries flow like that. VR, crypto, uh, these kind of hardware spaces, machine learning back in the day. And so that's where we are in the decentralized and crypto world right now. And all I want to do is build very valuable, legitimate products that serve a real purpose and kind of go from there. And, you know, 
And so, so let's talk about crypto real quick. So you, uh, you can apologize now for not including me in the Ether crowd sale, which I know you were <laughs> on top of at the time. Did you buy in the actual crowd sale or right after? I bought a little bit after the crowd sale, but it was like single digit dollars. It was very cheap. I'm, I'm pretty sure I said it out loud at lunch. Every, you, know. you did. I, I remember you saying that. And I was like, I remember thinking Ethereum, dumb name. Uh, like that's, that's like a weird name. Normal people aren't going to want to own Ethereum. Like that seems weird. Literally, that was my 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 dumbass thinking, and then like every you know year since then, I sort of think about why don't I just listen more to Furcon? Why don't I just do the things he says and stop thinking for myself a little bit? So so that's kind of where I'm at. So you you initially bought some crypto. I remember sitting next to you while you were buying you know random ass you know good good stuff, and then the shit coins also just fucking around seeing what's what, and then you sort of showed me what's going on in DeFi. So for people who don't know. Here's how I'll explain DeFi, and then you tell me what you would say. So today, there's like the normal financial system. There's a stock market. There's banks you can go drive and park and walk into. When you walk into that bank, you can say, hey, uh, here's my money. Store it safely for me. Like put it in a savings account. Give me some interest maybe. Um, Or I'd like to take a loan out. And then they say, great, let's just decide if you are credit worthy, if you can get a loan and how much you can get. So that's the traditional financial system, like in a nutshell, the simplified version. There's a parallel, like, you know, a parallel universe where all those same things have been built through code now instead of by law, right? So we used to write down, you know, contracts and put them in, you know, lawyers would write the contracts and now programmers write the contracts. And so you could do all those same things. So you've showed me tools and had me, got me set up where you take your crypto money and you can put it in a savings account and you can earn 5%, 10% a year of yield. So you earn much better interest rates. You can lend it to other people or you can take loans and get loans for things. Um, so explain kind of like maybe what part is most interesting to you or give an example of something you've done with crypto where you're actually not just like speculating in the in the DeFi space, but you're actually using this alternate financial system. And Sean, yeah. what's, a, what, what's an example of what, what you were just saying? What's like your favorite platform for that? So Furkan showed me a couple that I, I like. So, um, you know, so one is Compound, right? So it's compound.finance is a website you go to. And what it says is, hey, great, you have Ether. You don't want to sell your Ether. But so I did a very simple loan. Um, I went to Compound Finance. I staked or basically like I put up Ether that I own. I said, great, here's, let's say, 100 Ether. And then it says, great, you can... You can just lend that out to other people who want to borrow Ether, and I, you can earn this percent annually. And you know, if you go to, if I go to Wells Fargo, I'm going to go get 0.001 percent, you know, a year on my savings account. Whereas with this, it was like you can get seven percent a year or five percent a year. It's like you know, actually, like a decent saving, a decent interest rate. Or I could say, great, I put my hundred Ether up, and I'd like to borrow some of this other coin. So what I did, just as a test of the system, I said. Can I get a loan off my cryptocurrency? So I put up Ether to borrow uh, USDC, which is a, a, a stable coin made by Coinbase, which basically is supposed to be one. USDC is supposed to always be $1. So I got USDC and then I went to Coinbase and I sold my USDC and I got dollars. And I said, wow, I, I just put up, I just like basically showed that I have this Ether and I locked up Ether into this account t- for temporarily as long as I want. And I got a US dollar loan that I could go use to go buy, you know, a pizza right now if I want to. And I was like, well, that's pretty sweet. I never had to talk to a banker, fill out an application, uh-huh. do a credit check. I didn't have to do anything. And I was able to get a loan. And now what a lot of people do is they do that. They, they put Ether up. They get a loan of 
some stable coin, they use a stable coin to buy more ether or to go buy some other coin and kind of gamble, like kind of like leveraged gambling. So there's other things you can do, but I just did a really simple one with where Furkan was showing. Yeah. And uh, I think uh, lending is a big part of it. I mean, lending is dangerous in many ways. Like, you know, I, I look at lending as like, this is bad. That's my first reaction to any lending thing because people <laughs> do that, right? They basically um, take it and they leverage it. Now, if you take it and you have purpose behind it and you're a long-term holder of something, that makes a lot of sense, right? Like you can kind of do that. And, and the reason I find DeFi exciting is you could take all the rules that you've seen get destroyed in like, you know, the 2008 crash or kind of the dot-com crash, and you could put a contract where that can't happen. And so, for example, there's this a protocol called Liquidity Protocol. It's a new protocol. They do 0% interest loans on your ETH. So you can put up ETH, you take a 0% loan, and what they've done is they've created this system where they have a stability pool that will liquidate people if they go below their collateralization ratio. And so what so happens with banks... Explain that in simple terms. So okay, what, so, so um, how, do I, how do I get... Um, how do, because they're not doing a credit check, because they're not asking for my W-2 income, how do they make sure that this loan eventually gets paid back. How do they do that? So you put in, let's say, 100 Ethereum, right? So you put in some amount that has a dollar value today, and they let you take out their token called LUSD. It's like a USD stable coin. Uh, so now you have the stable coin. You can trade it for other stable coins or other coins or take it to Coinbase you know, using whatever mechanism and kind of get it to dollars. Uh, what you've done is you've put up your Ethereum, and you have to basically maintain some what they call collateralization ratio. Like you have to be over the lending amount by at least 10%. Otherwise, you're going to get liquid. And the action of liquidating means somebody will go and take your Ethereum and buy it for a discount uh, because they have to do this liquidation task. And you know that's the risk. You're putting this collateral up like you would in, in, in another case. Now, so it's like if you know I take a mortgage out, I can't make my mortgage payments because I lost my job. Well, the bank Correct. has my house as collateral. They can foreclose on my house. It's the same concept, but instead of a physical house, it's whatever collateral you put up initially to get the loan, your stake. Mm -hmm. And so the, the danger is I put up Ethereum. The price of Ethereum is very volatile. It goes down a lot. I was aggressive with my ratio and I kind of went below this number and I got liquidated. I still have my loan amount, right? So but there's obviously risks with these platforms, like there would be a risk of buying a you know investment property and not being able to make rent on it or not be able to make mortgage. What I like about it is the underneath where um, in 2008, the bankers just went to the government and whoever else and was like, we need new rules right now. We're, we're dying. And so you kind of invent new rules. This rule is built into the protocol. If you're at below this ratio, some liquidator can come in and, and be the liquidator. You can't, you don't get a choice of, Hey, is this going to happen or not? It's encoded. And so when you build, you know, financial products with, you know, directly encoded values, it makes it so that it's going to happen, whether it's a good situation for you or not, whether they like, you know, how you presented yourself or not, like, you know, and, and having gone through, you know, bad times as a founder and gone through bad credit, like, I don't have good credit today still. It's like, I have a lot of money in the bank. And sometimes I, I can't go get a credit card because like, literally my credit still sucks from like, whatever, seven years ago or five years ago, or however long ago those problems were. Um, and if one little things happen, like I had a small credit card that I forgot about is literally a $300 thing. I missed some like yearly, you know, payment fee. Cause you know, every year you got that fee, man, it showed up on my credit. Oh, that's a huge ding. Doesn't matter who you really are, what you can do. Like that financial system sucks. 
if you have the ability to kind of um, do some of these actions, I believe you should be able to do them. And that's so, the most interesting thing about DeFi is so, so access that's the, and permissionless. You know? So that's the general, like, that's a good, I think, general overview because most people don't really understand what, what, what is even the point of this? How does this work? Uh, let's go specific. Are you doing anything cool with DeFi? Do you have any good trades going? Are you making money doing this? Are you, are you actually doing anything in the De- DeFi space right now? I think uh, Uniswap is probably one of the, my favorite companies in this space. And I think we've talked about this a little bit, but what Uniswap did, and I'll give you kind of the simple version of it, is usually when you wanted to trade two assets, you had to create a marketplace. So let's say I have one Sean coin and I want to sell it. I need Sam to show up and buy that Sean coin, right? And if there aren't two sides and they don't agree on the price, this trade won't happen. And what Uniswap did, and I think there were some others before it, but Uniswap has become the biggest player in this space, is they created a one-sided trading market where you know a buyer or seller can show up and they're trading against what's called a liquidity pool. The investors come in and put in both sides of the trade marketplace. So like one Ethereum and $3,000 would create, like let's say, a liquidity pool. Then, Sean, you can just show up and say, I want to sell. And you're going to sell against this pool. Uh, you don't need another side. The pool is always the other side. And they've created a simple algorithm. They call it like, you know, an AMM, an automated market maker, where, you know, they want to keep the price close. And depending on how much liquidity there is and how much you're willing to sell, it's going to slip away from that amount. And that's where the price movements will happen. And, and you were in those pools. You were saying, oh, I'm making good money by being the liquidity right. pool. Well, give us a what, what What was the yield you could get? Let's say you put $1,000 in. What were you making being the liquidity provider? So uh, obviously in the earlier days of Uniswap, the pool yields were very high. Like you could see 100% plus on like fairly good assets. And, and it's really important to think about, you have two sides of this market, right? So if, you ha- if you're in the Ethereum and US dollar pool, when Ethereum is going up, you're like losing some of it, right? Because you're giving it away uh, yeah. to, kind of, to kind of like receive basically dollars. and you know, so if you want to hold a lot of Ethereum long run, it doesn't really make sense to be in some of these pools that are unaligned. And so I always try to find things that are connected together. So like two stable coin pools, a USDC and DAI pool. That does, you know, anywhere from like eight to 15%. And that's been like that on the low end of the spectrum for the last year plus. I mean, I'm holding effectively what, you know, we'll call dollars on both sides of the puzzle. And people need to trade between these assets. And I'm willing to be the trade partner for them, along with a lot of other people. And you basically get a little bit of a fee, and that's where the liquidity pool makes money. So holding you know dollar on this side or dollar on this side feels good. If there's something very well aligned with Ethereum, so if you believe Ethereum and Bitcoin will kind of together flow upwards, that could be a very good pool for you to kind of take what they call wrapped Bitcoin and Ethereum and be in that pool. And Uniswap made all of this happen from the consumer side to make a one-sided trade, but also as an investor to come into a liquidity pool. And say, hey, I'm willing to kind of put up both of these assets, and then I want to make some fees as people do this. Right. Okay. So, all right. So that's that's good. I think a little probably a little too complicated for the general yeah. audience at this point. So, Sam, Look, where do you I, want to take uh, it? I'm wearing a Harvard shirt. That's about it. <laughs> oh, sorry, my bad. He's talking about two Harvard scholars. Yeah, it's just a T-shirt. Right, just, so I got one more. Anyone can buy it. Anyone right, can buy I got it. one more in a different space that I think Sam will love. Uh, but you know. <laughs> Sean, I told you about this book I read about vertical farming, and uh, 
you know, basically, like I read this wait a book. Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You guys just were talking about crypto stuff. And then he just said, I've got something I think Sam will like, farming. Yeah, Am I that big of a redneck to you? I liked it too. <laughs> we, we, this was one of our cool shit hours was he's like, I came in thinking he's going to tell me about you know, WBTC. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I got to go look up all these acronyms. He's like, no, vertical farming. And I was like, oh, brilliant. Tell me about it, right? Because Furcon's got a wide range. Some days, I remember early on at, at, when we were working together, he's like, when Uber had just kind of was getting big, he's like, I'm thinking, he's like, I got a bunch of friends who are kind of like, you know, not doing a whole lot nowadays. Uh, I'm thinking about just renting like five, buying five cars and just having them like run a fleet. Like, I think I could just make X dollars doing zero work by running my own little taxi fleet on Uber. Or he was like, uh, you know, there's these, I forgot what it was, float spas or cryo tank yeah. companies. What, what was that one that you were really into? Yeah. I, I, uh, you know, the cryo tanks are something that, you know, if you have bad joints like me, it, it's like a, you know, night and day difference on how your body feels. And so, you know, like I still want to put one in and I think in the lab that I'm spinning up over here and we'll get to that probably at some point, but. Wait, you know, what's the, what's this, what's said lab? I'm I'm building a hardware and robotics lab here in San Francisco as a part of F. Inc. And you know the idea is software you can do in a coffee shop in a living room, but you can't really build any one of these even off-the-shelf hardware products in your living room. And so what I want to do is take a lot of founders who are interested or future founders who are interested in building these ideas. I'm going to have a machine shop and an electronic shop and a robotic shop in this facility. It's going to be in this iconic location. And my goal is just to get like a bunch of talented, hungry people in this roof and just have like great energy and build together. And so you see these companies form out of universities because they have two things. They have a shop there that you can access mostly for free. And then they have people in the shop that turns into your community. Like as a kid, I can just show up and stand next to you while you're doing something. And you go, you don't like give me a weird look. You go, oh, you want to, you know how to use this? No. Okay. Let me show you like that little bit might be the difference between you willing to try and kind of get into a field or not. And uh, where are you setting this up at? Support that. What was that? Where? Where in the city? You said it's iconic location. Can you say yeah, where? So we're looking at a place at Fort Mason in San Francisco. So it's not complete yet. Um, but that's kind of like, for me, like the iconic locations are, I can see the Golden Gate Bridge. I can be on the water. So we've explored stuff on the piers in general, uh, in Chrissy Field, Fort Mason. Like these locations, when I go there, I get excited. You know, like going to Monkey Inferno was a fantastic office, but now outside it wasn't that great. Like Soma, Mission, these areas, I don't get excited when I go there. And I usually how don't much, go there too much. How much are you willing to invest in to, to sink into this thing to make it interesting? It's going to be a lot. It'll probably cost about half a million bucks a year just to even like have the base building in place. And, uh, you know, my guess is it'll be double that just from, you know, the people that I want to bring in and kind of investments I want to do and what I want to support. Uh, I want to like I I actually ran a plastic fabrication shop and a small machine shop a long time ago, and so I've done a lot of this. I've welded and you know I've worked on cars, so like I actually have a lot of this interest, and uh, I'm more excited to have my own CNC and my own machines and things to work with as well. So, dude, you're so cool. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so Sam, uh, the reason I said you're gonna like this idea and company is because uh, I don't listen to very many podcasts, but I li- I do listen to this podcast. This is probably the only one I listen to. This is not. Clint so it, baby. We're yeah. taking that testimonial to the moon. And I'm not even just pampering you guys, Sean. I mean, you know me. I'm not going to tell you like it is, but I really do listen to you guys. Well, I exciting. know because I'm pretty sure you didn't listen at the beginning when I was just interviewing folks. And then now that it's ideas <laughs> and it's shooting the shit, Sam's here. He's listening now. <laughs> yeah. And uh, so you talked about like, hey, you know, you, you just sold the company, by the way. Congratulations to you as well. 
And uh, you were talking about how like you want to get your hands kind of into things and yeah. you, know, you want to like do some of that. So I was like, oh, OK, if I ever get back on the pod, I'm going to tell Sam about this idea. Uh, and so I'm, 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 by the way, I'm sitting here taking notes, like I'm awesome. writing all this down. And so I read this book and this book was talking about vertical farming. I think I don't know. I don't, I don't remember the name of the book, but basically um, you know, the first couple of chapters, it really talks about what the major problem in the U.S. is, as you know, as you're producing a lot of food and the world. Right. The world went from, I think, three billion people 100 years ago to like almost eight billion now. Like it's a pretty massive difference in like kind of how many people are on the world. You're starting to see effects like. We see the wildfires here in California. You hear about all these things. And so what, what's happening is as you start farming in soil, you basically destroy the soil. And after some period of time, you get no yield out of the soil. And so about 10 years ago, 15 years ago, vertical farming got very popular as a way to put food production closer to cities. Like New York City requires you know, millions of acres outside of New York City to support it. Wouldn't it make sense for that to be in the city? Well, how do you do that? Well, you could put it in these buildings. You could put it under kind of UV lights. and you could drive water through it through hydroponics, and it's got really popular. A lot of people invested in it. Um, so if, and it kind of went vertical that farming is for someone like me who's zero zero nature knowledge. What, what would how, how to make paint a mental picture? What is a vertical farm, bro? So, have you never grown weed in your in your apartment? No, I don't smoke no. weed. I never grew weed. I uh, don't do drugs. I don't do I've, crimes. I don't. I don't either. But I feel like every sixteen year old has at least grown one pot plant in high school. Yeah. No, so, dude. you know, mo- you know, you think about plants in the ground because they need kind of nutrients from soil, but really they just need some of those nutrients and you could just put them as long as you deliver them to the roots, it's going to pull that in. And so people figured out, hey, you can grow stuff without soil. And that that's a huge that's just a big unlock because it doesn't have to go in the ground. So well, instead I can just you do use water, right? Correct. You use water. And uh, there's been more advances now where it's not just water, but it's like, you know, I think they call it aeroponics, but it's just misted, right? So it's kind of like more yield against the root. And, you know, you still have to power it with sunlight. So you could put it inside a warehouse, but you need sunlight. And so big UV lights was kind of the strategy. And so phase one of vertical farming was we're going to put them in high rises. We're going to take some floors and we're going to turn them into a farm floor. And that should support the building. And these are normally the pictures that you see what people are kind of dreaming about vertical farming. It's like a giant building where a bunch of them are farms and it looks cool. Uh, but in practice, it was like kind of a warehouse, like a data center. And, you know, that's where it ended up living. And I, I think that's fine. The, the reason these guys got, I got excited about, they're called Nebulum Farms. And what they do is they basically have uh, direct-to-consumer um, lettuce, microgreens, and tomatoes. That's what they sell you. And so, you know, they started kind of in a different phase, like kind of like, hey, we're building cool tech. Like we've been in this, Sean, before where you're excited about computer vision and doing this thing. But actually along the way, they realized, well, we don't really want to license out our thing. We can't franchise this. We can't do like all these other ideas we had. People actually just want this. And what if we could put up a farm near you? And I think they have their first farm in Idaho and they just have a monthly subscription to get lettuce and tomatoes and these things show up to your door. And I mean, today they do same day harvest to delivery because they've kind of taken the process down to this simple thing. They have this basic farm. And if you can see some of the pictures that they have on their website of what their farm looks like, uh, but it looks like a little data center. It's like a rack of, of lettuce. There's a little light that will kind of rotate and like give it sunlight. And on the top, there's a mister that kind of like, you know, and, makes and sure what's it grows. this called? What's this called? called Nebulum Farms. Nebulum Farm. Farms. And, you know, like if you ever get a chance to go taste wow. some vertical farmed lettuce, 
you will notice the taste difference. Like it is not the same lettuce. You're like, wait, lettuce has taste. It is good, crispy. Like it actually makes a huge difference in the quality of product. And I believe they can make this happen, you know, same day harvest to delivery for a large part of America. So, so what they're, wow. they're on their website, it says less water. So you use 98% less water. And in places like California where there's like droughts, water shortages, that's a big deal. No pesticides because it's an indoor sort of controlled environment. And no soils, no bugs, right? That's why you don't need the pesticide. Right. Uh, it says less human handling. I don't know about that. Uh, so always fresh. And basically the the goal would be, hey, here's an eco-friendly thing, but also this taste, this produce, it tastes better. And, and you've actually had it. So what's the no bullshit? Like, is it, if I didn't know blind taste test, would I be able to tell the difference between these two or what? Yeah. And, and, we, and we should do this. Like, you know, there's... A couple of other brands that have gotten popular that you can pick up in stores. I think there's one called Plenty uh, that shows up in stores. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that have wanted to do this. But if the business isn't going to work, the tech is not going to hold it, right? Like, that's the same thing as software. Like, this problem exists everywhere. And so if you're building some emerging tech thing, you can't keep talking about how great the tech is. And so the direct-to-consumer angle, it resonated with me because it's like, okay, I've seen grocery delivery. I've seen... Some of these things where you could get like fruit in a box. Well, if you can produce the fruit yourself, like you just have a machine that can produce fruit, that's the vertical farm. Well, why don't you become the biggest farm in America really quickly by kind of going city to city and kind of doing that? And you've seen Uber do that. You've seen kind of all of these other, right? You could literally invent, you know, kind of build the biggest farm in America now, right? Sam, why'd you decide it just now? The way that he was describing, I'm like, all right, they're mailing plants. That's not that. I mean, yeah, that's like it's they're okay. It's like different lettuce. It's 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 like a, a candle. It's like those candles that have a ring in, in in the bottom when you melt the candles. It's like a sticky novelty type of thing. It's cool once or twice, but the way that you're describing it now, I think, Furkan, I think what you're really good at is something I'm not as good at, which is like you're really good at breaking your frame and like changing i don't know if i'm even phrasing this correctly but kind of changing the whole paradigm which is like no 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 we're going to build the largest farm in the world and now when you say that i think man so you're just gonna have to buy all this land and have this massive huge field but you're kind of saying like oh but by the way by farm i mean it's like these little small things in every convenience store in america do you know what i mean yeah and uh that that's kind of like the the trade-off here which is you know a farm that's like maybe you know, in a 50,000 square foot building, that might be like, you know, thousands or tens of thousands of like land acres that you're replacing because vertical farming does many things. It reduces the water, but it also compacts how much space you need to do the action. So instead of buying large masses of land produce this, you can buy warehouses or facilities closer to the city center and serve that area, right? And so if you can be near like a city like Austin or San Francisco, you can kind of serve that city kind of efficiently with kind of a smaller, you know, kind of smaller. God, that's landmass. brilliant. Yeah. That's so cool. And dude, <laughs> it, it, like, I think what you're really good at, like when I'm around you, I feel so inspired and I want to bring something up in a second that's related to this, but basically like you are the type of, I hate when we talk about San Francisco, it's this lovely place. Everyone needs to go, but the type of people like you, there was a large density of that in San Francisco and I am not at all naturally like you. But I felt I improved and just changed my opinion on so many things after hanging out with people like you. I don't know what we call that. I think Sean is a little bit more like you than than I am. But we ha- we also have a handful of friends that are like that. And they just like, you guys think about stuff in such a way where 
maybe it's like when I ask some, when I ask my challenge myself to come up with an idea or think about what's the possibility of X, Y, and Z, I put these constraints on where like, um, well, there's no way I could pull off this because that technology for this doesn't work, or I'm not good enough to do this, or but that's it's always been done X. Um, whereas when you think of stuff, you're really good at being open minded and defaulting to like, well, let's actually that is kind of interesting. Let's play that out. And you don't have these constraints of like being held back that a lot of normal people like me have, I think. Do you know what I mean, Sean? Yeah. Um, I, I think it's simpler than that. I think for kind of, you know, everybody uses their own frame of reference, their own lens. And uh, he looks at things through the lens of a technologist. So I think, and I, I, I remember sitting down next to you and being like, how did you get the way you are? And you're like, well, like, I remember when I was five, my dad bought home, brought home like a printer and like we put it together, right? Wasn't that the story? Like a computer or a printer when you were like five or six years old? Yes, yeah, since my earliest memories, it was an XT computer. It was kind of like, you know, not even DOS yet. It was just like a screen and uh, you put it together, we booted it up. And I remember he had like a disc that had, you, know, you type like auto exec. I was just a kid. I knew how to type A-U-T-O-E-X-E-C. If I press enter, I get to this like simulation football game. And right. that's all I could do. Like you pick a play and it runs it for you. You don't even, you don't even actually play the game. But like, I remember that as the earliest memories. And I mean, I got started really young. Like I worked at a dot-com when I was 15 and just like my, my hobbies ended up being very valuable. Like I wasn't a, you know, not a musician where, you know, I would have had to made it really big. It was like, I was into computers and kind of programming and doing things like that. And uh, those things just happened to have become very valuable especially in the Bay Area, and that, that kind of like lended itself to a lot of opportunity. Also, yeah. something that you're going to do with this, what are you, what are you calling your space again? Uh, we call it Founders Inc. That's like the company name. So I, I want to like tell a quick story about that. So back in 2000, and, and Sean, I can't see your face, so I can't see if you're, I can't tell if you're on board with this story, but yeah, I do hope it. you are. Uh, you, you, back in 2013, so basically, Sean, when did you start as the Monkey Inferno, uh, like the guy in charge? I think I joined uh, at the end of 2012. So basically, 2013 is kind of the actual beginning. So around that time, I was working out of the, I was, I had just sold something and I, I didn't make a, a lot of money, but like a hundred grand, let's say. And I was looking to start something else. And I found this guy named Dave and he had a thing called Founders Dojo, which was basically he rented an office. It was, he, I don't know, Dave had a business that probably did half a million in sales and he probably profited $400,000. So he wasn't a rich, rich guy, but he had this office that he could spend 3K on a month. And he let me and like eight other people come and work out of his office. And he, uh, we heard about it through friends of friends. Like, hey, there's this thing called Founder Dojo. They're letting like people just work there. And it's a dingy office. It wasn't nice. It was maybe six, 500 square feet. And then down the street was the same thing, but it was far fancier. It was called Monkey Inferno. It was pretty much the exact same thing, but like way better. It was this guy named Michael Birch who was on the podcast. If you look up the hippie who made a billion dollars that Sean did that episode. And it was a guy who started and sold the company for hundreds of millions or close to a billion dollars. And his like project was the same exact thing. It was nicer. You know, they had like, you guys probably had like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of interior decorating. And, and uh, it was like really fancy, but it was the same thing basically of like nerds and like weirdos and misfits we all would come to these spaces and I would hang out at Monkey Inferno all the time. And you guys sometimes came to our thing and we would, we would dork out to the stuff that people would make fun of. Like Dave loved Meerkat. Meerkat was uh, basically a live streaming app, which kind of like was the early technology and early behavior for even like a, like a clubhouse or whatever. Um, and 
he would do this thing called a marathon, he called it, and he would meerkat for 24 hours straight. He would be in the office meerkatting for 24 hours straight, and he would meet these other dorks, and they would come and fly into our office. And then um, it was just so weird. Like, we did all this weird shit. One time we created this thing called, uh, what do we call it? Uh, coffee, coffee rush, we called it. And you click a button, and you get coffee inside of, like, 20 minutes, wherever you are in San Francisco. And all these just nerdy, dorky little projects. But... It was like the best time of my life. And it was the most, one of the most formative, it was some of the best experiences I ever had as it relates to business and just like becoming a man and like tinkering with all these new things and having an open mind. And I think what you're setting up for a con is like the next, obviously this is like the next iteration of that. And I'm so fortunate that I've had people like you and, uh, and you guys had Birch, Michael Birch, and I had Dave Grosblatt. I'm so fortunate that people like you guys exist in this world because these little silly things that like are fun and like, that seems stupid on the outside. And the fact that there's these grown adults who are thankfully wealthy enough and willing to bet their money to do this stuff, it sounds outrageous and it sounds like a movie. And I'm so happy I was part of it. And it made such a huge difference. Um, it's like yeah, the fact that these exist, it's, it's a movie. 100%. And uh, those places you talk about, so I know David Grossblatt as well. And uh, you know, I used to go to another place growing up, Hacker Dojo. It was in Mountain View. And, uh, you know, even growing up in Silicon Valley, you didn't immediately have like a network. Like, I don't know, like a bunch of VCs just from growing up here. That's not actually not how it worked. My block didn't have VCs on it. It was just normal people. And, uh, you know, you really didn't find people like yourself. And so the internet changed a lot, right? Like it allowed people to connect with each other and find each other. But, you know, the in-person interactions, they just operate differently. And it's a lot more ad hoc. Like I remember you being at the Monkey Inferno and a lot of other you know people that we would have work out of there. It was cool because you could just walk by, strike up a random conversation, talk about something, and maybe it resulted in nothing. And sometimes it would actually stick with you and it would be really important. And so um, at App Love It, it felt the same way early on when we were kind of doing these like, you know, random ideas. It was like, ah, oh, we're just a bunch of misfits together here that are just going to go on this journey. And that energy is just hard to replace. And it was really fun. And every time it's been there, it's been really instrumental for me and in, like learning a lot. Like, Conversations during the lunch table at Monkey Inferno shaped a lot about how people think, what are, you know, what are ways to conduct yourself, like just things even outside of tech, right? Like you interact with a lot of different people and you can bring good energy to it. And uh, I think it's really critical. And so I've been on this mission slightly before COVID to kind of like build this facility, but then kind of COVID happened. And, you know, obviously like it's good in terms of like new buildings, new opportunities, cheaper rent here in the city. Great. Uh, but I think this thing is kind of necessary for a lot of people who are in this builder phase, you know, like they might not be a founder yet. They might not go raise a bunch of money. They just want to build some stuff and hack on it. And I'm willing to kind of take a bet to build that facility. And on this podcast, we talk a ton about like buying businesses and we almost get to the point where it almost sounds like we're a bunch of like uh, banker PE types where it's like, <laughs> oh, that's an, an interesting opportunity. But the coolest shit that I've ever done and the most fun I've ever done is just dorking out with like, people that were like me and just like, oh, this is kind of funny. Like, this is silly. Like, we could do that. And it all starts like, this is so stupid. It's so fun. And sometimes it like turns into really cool, amazing stuff. And, and, and I think that that's fun to remember that that should, that should, that should be how a lot of stuff starts. Or um, maybe like, maybe it's not should be, but it can be that way, which is, I think, better. Yeah, organic. Organic is awesome, right? It just means that we just kind of sat around, we brainstormed some ideas, some of our experiences, we tried some things. Uh, you need to be able to try things. I think that's like really important. And if I can reduce, uh, you know, for me growing up, I didn't have a lot of like people that I could lean on. That's like they had done this already or they were doing businesses. It was just like, 
kind of fail as you go, take a bunch of scars and, uh, you know, finding like people like Adam and Sean, like was critical for me in the sense that like I had people that I could talk to about business things that like maybe other people I couldn't interact with. And, and I just want to kind of, if I can take that uh, for, let's say, like Sean said earlier, uh, you know, myself 15 years ago, I could give myself some of that. Like, that's what I, that's what I feel like I'm kind of building over here. Yeah. There's what's that cheesy phrase. That's great, but cheesy. It's like, be the person you needed when, as you know, when you were a kid or something like that. Uh, it's one of those things that like, if everybody actually did it, you know, the world would sort of be a good, great place. Um, and, and I think that's what in many ways you're doing. Uh, I don't even know what I needed. I, I sort of like had a different journey where I was like, just kind of on autopilot for like 20 years. Uh, didn't have an entrepreneurial bone in my body. Uh, didn't think about stuff. I just kind of was going with the flow. It was pretty like, you know, I was trying to, trying to do good at school, but I, you know, I was okay. Wasn't, wasn't the best. Wasn't particularly a hard worker. Wasn't doing anything interesting. Wasn't great, you know, socially. And I, I just felt like I kind of woke up when I was 21 years old and started, you know, when I had my first idea for a company, that's when I started to be more like me. And so I think everybody, you know, okay, why do I do this podcast? Well, I'm not going to say I do it to give back. Like, that's not why I do it because it's fun. But the side effect of doing it is that the person who's me when they're 18, 17, 16, 20 years old or 30, doesn't even matter how old. If you're kind of in that autopilot phase where you don't feel like you found your thing, where you don't feel like, you know, you're excited every day to wake up. And then all of a sudden you hear a couple guys on a podcast shooting the shit. They sound really excited about life. They got great energy. They got ideas for days. And you start to look at yourself and be like, why don't I see ideas all the time? How are these guys able to come on the podcast two times a week and do it? And so what does that do? It proliferates more people that are like me. That's, you know, what I want. You know, I, I am the way I want to be. So that hopefully I can like, you know, uh, incept a bunch of other people in their brain that maybe they can uh, pick that up, right? Podcast a vehicle to do that. You're doing the same thing. You know, when you were growing up, you were, you know, messing around with hardware and cars and uh, business when you were 15, 16 years old, and you were just messing around with computers. And, and so, and a bunch of people helped you out, right? Your dad, bringing home the computer, or I think you told me about a guy kind of in your neighborhood who had like the, the car stuff that you could use to go work on cars. If you didn't have that hardware and you picked up those hobbies and you just followed those hobbies, you doubled down, tripled down, even though that wasn't the common path, right? The common path was finish college, get a job, like get married, have kids, whatever, right? Like everybody has this like path that's kind of like your parents and society sort of throws at you. And you went off that path. I think when you went off that path, you probably didn't have as much guidance as like you're able to provide to that next wave where they should go on to do bigger and better things because, you know, you're able to knock down a few of those walls for them or with them. Yeah. And uh, I, I like how you phrased it. Uh, the cheesy phrase is obviously interesting, but like, I don't think giving back is the right, that's not the right uh, way to frame this. Cause it's, it's, it's like, it's not charity, right? Like, obviously like I'm building a business. I do believe in the long run. Uh, I want to make money with this business and then things I'm going to invest in are going to, in the long run, pay off for me monetarily as well. But as a side effect, uh, I, I do believe that, you know, kind of like your podcast, like you're going to inspire a lot of people. I would love to inspire the next like thousand builders or founders, kind of however you want to phrase it. And I think that side effect is fantastic. I don't think that business has to be, you know, detached from, you know, some side effect. Like I, I think it's if I wanted to make it a charity, I'd make it a nonprofit, right? Like that would be the way to go. And that, that would be kind of the way to do it. But I, I think there's a lot of benefit and a lot of people will benefit hopefully from it. And ideally not just because of me, like hopefully it's more like kind of what the discord has become. It's like founders helping each other. 
like that's the best version of this. And if I could be maybe the person that can first create the circle, then awesome. Like that would be the hope. What's the biggest kind of like common mistake or trap you're seeing when you have those kind of young entrepreneurs in the discord working on their projects? What is the advice you keep on giving over and over again that like you feel like is the common, the common mistakes, the common traps that they're falling into? I think it's always, you know, what are you focused on? So like, if you're a builder, you're probably spending a lot of your energy on building. And if you're, you know, really most of these companies will kind of die in the market, not the tech. And there's some challenges sometimes, but even as a technology person, I would not spend too much time on technology. And, I, and Sean, you've, you experienced this firsthand. Like, how many times was I like, we'll just hack it in. And all the engineers are like, cringe, right? It's like, well, we have to. Like, we need to go win this market or figure out if this is real or not. If it's not real, we need to move on from this very fast because we're just wasting time, money, energy, and probably your company if we go down the wrong path here. And so it's pretty much always focused on, you know, for me, a lot of the advice is like, go be more aggressive on growth, go figure out your market, go understand your customers, use technology as a weapon for that. Not, it's not the purpose that you're building. Like you're going to sit here and build this technology. Somebody else is going to go take your market, probably with the same technology, by the way. Sam, I don't know if you have a hard stop, but there's one other one that I think is, is interesting that uh, Furkan could talk about. I don't know if you can talk about it, but Pack Protocol or yeah, um, I don't know if can, can you talk about that or is either that or I think you know the way you're setting up the DAO or any DAOs that you're a part of I think are interesting. So pick one of those two and then talk about that. Yeah, so uh, you know DAO decentralized autonomous organization. I'll call it a decentralized org because it's a little bit simpler to understand. Is really just kind of like this thing happening in the crypto world where um, people are forming effectively these partnerships together. They're doing it on you know on chain meaning as like an actual organization that kind of owns this code and things like that and so so you know, okay let me let me simplify for a second so sam and you started the hustle you probably made a delaware c corp right so you go to delaware that's the rule of law that's kind of where you're going to go write down all your articles of incorporation and you chose c corp as the like structure of your organization and that lets you do certain things you could take investment you could do this you could do that and so you could do an LLC, you could do a S Corp, you could do it in Nevada, you could do it in California. So those are the current ways that you start when you have a project that where you need a bunch of people to work together and be financially incentivized as a group. You, you traditionally you would use, you know, a Delaware C Corp or L, LLC or something like that. So what he's providing, what he's talking about is an alternative that's been made. And I, I think for kind of the trick here is what do they let you do that's different than just making it? Why, why don't I just go do an LLC or a C Corp uh, in Delaware? Well, it, it lets you first be, um, you know, it lets you kind of detach yourself from the legal entity and how you are kind of like having your stake of ownership and, and kind of voting and governance of, of the company. So like, you know, we talked a lot, Sean, before of like, man, it kind of sucks. Companies are like top heavy and everybody's putting a lot of you know, energy and effort and, yeah, you might need a person that's responsible for, for making these choices, but wouldn't it be cool if, and you know, a bunch of people on the internet basically took that, wouldn't it be cool if we made a company that could be owned by everybody equally and you could do things like voting or managing the treasury or issuing new you know, tokens or shares to people and you could incentivize them however you wanted. So like if you bring on some people to help you market and like some, let's say big celebrity, you can issue some governance to them. Like they could be a part of this. You can Align incentive between investors, founders, community, the market, whoever you want, 
And so here's, a, here's an example of one, right? That you've sh- you showed me. So there's this thing called the Lao. Have you ever heard of this, Sam? So the Lao, L-A-O. What it is, is it's a venture fund, but instead of, um, like if you go to Sequoia, Sequoia's got, you know, let's say the GPs, the general partners, and it's got the managing director maybe, and it's got then the associates and the analysts. So it's like a traditional company. It's like a pyramid. And at the top is the people in charge. And what the DAO is, is basically, here's a fund. You put your money in. For however much money you put in, you get a certain number of tokens. Tokens are like shares. And, uh, and then there's nobody specifically in charge. And the fund basically can receive proposals. So there's just, they have a website. You can pitch them. The pitch goes in. Everybody gets it in their inbox. Everybody votes yes or no. Based on how many tokens they hold, that's their vote. That's their weight. And then if the majority of the DAO has voted yes, it gets the, the treasury, which is the bank account for the, for the, for the Lao, will pay out that project. Here's your investment. And, uh, and then at any time, I, if I don't like the Lao, I can just sell my stake, sell it to anybody else. They can take my spot in the Lao. Um, and you know, now they own, they have that share. So it's completely liquid at all times, whether there's, maybe there's been great projects in there. And, and now this thing looks really valuable. These tokens look more valuable than the initial money that was put in. Well, I can sell out. I don't have to wait 10 years for those projects to pan out. I can sell out today at two, at double my money. Or, um, you know, I can say, I want to, I want to have more control. I'm going to buy out more tokens so that I have a greater say in this community because I'm going to spend a bunch of time and I really want to make sure my vote, my vote matters. And basically it ties your vote to your sort of your merits, how much value you put in, in this case, how much money you put into the Lao. So they did it as an investment vehicle. Other people did it as an art collecting vehicle, put money in, buy art, art is owned by the group and you could sell in, in, in whatever. So there's these uh, headless companies. There's no CEO in a suit at the top that is telling everybody what to do and deciding who gets hired and fired. It's just a bunch of shareholders together and you vote based on your shares. It's like, a, you know, more like America, like a democracy, I guess. And then yeah. there's other variations of that too that I can't even wrap my head around. Those are the simple <laughs> ones I've understood. There's others that I don't even understand yet. Yeah, it's, it's very complicated, very, very complex. But this is a simple version, I like how you phrase it, is kind of like a democracy times a company uh, you know, mixed in one. And maybe company's even the wrong phrasing there. But you know, I'm very fascinated with this. It's a very different pattern. I don't know if it's better or worse than you know what we've seen traditionally, but it's definitely different, right? And uh, I've been wanting to kind of like, you know, be a part of one, create one. And so I joined a couple, but I'm not like you know some meaningful stakeholder in it. But then you know, with a lot of the work that's been going on in F- NFTs, a lot of popularity, you know, Top Shot is just like taken over, like my friends group, and uh, very popular. And I know you're super into like BitClout and some of these other uh, platforms, and so. I've been wanting to kind of wrap my head around NFTs and I started talking to a lot of developers and people that are interested about some of these ideas that I had. And I found like a group of five, six people that I'm like, oh, we're, we're all kind of really into this. Let's make a DAO. I'll like kind of put in the first amount of money. And now a couple of my buddies are also putting in some money for getting some stake in this. And the idea is we're just going to be kind of a group of people that are going to build fun projects in the NFT space. And our goal is there's a lot of hype right now. We're in that hype cycle. Hype cycle is going to go away, right? It's the same pattern that we talked about before. Well, what are the valuable things that NFTs can do? Let's go build some of these. And so, you know, we have two ideas that we're working on right now as a group. One of them is like Shopify for NFTs. Like you come in, you click two buttons and you like, you can create your own. And, you know, I'll ask you this, Sean, like you've heard a lot about NFTs. You've talked a lot about them. Have you minted your own yet? I have not. Why not? Uh... 
I don't know what the hell I, my NFT would be. So like, uh, for example, we have a friend, Jack Butcher, who has minted many NFTs now himself. And he's a great designer. So he makes like a cool visual yeah, design. I mean, it's, like, it's like badass art. And he's like, oh, cool. Instead of just posting this for free on Twitter for likes, I'll post this on Foundation and I'll sell it. And he's sold some of these for $60,000, $70,000 each. Um, and so he's made you know a lot of money this year just basically selling his own kind of like his philosophies. He just makes into a kind of a, a digital poster and he sells that digital poster to his fans. And so for me, I'm like, oh, that's cool. If I made an NFT, I don't know. I don't really have that artistic skill. I don't even know what the actual NFT would be. That's kind of my thought. And then, but you haven't even just tried one, right? Like when, when you first saw Shopify, you went and created a store, right? Like you didn't, you didn't have to start a company, you know, or sell something, but you went and did yeah, it. So. One's easier than the other. One, you're typing in a user, fake new username and password. Yeah, yeah exactly. Well, I mean, if I open a Shopify store, I also need to put a product there, right? Like I, I can't also have a empty Yeah, but you store. could you could fool you could around. You try it, right? right. And, and I think that that's a thing that I saw is like a lot of this uh these worlds DeFi NFTs, the dollar value is really big at the top end of it. When you go and dig underneath and you're like, "Ah, there's only like 5,000 users doing this. Why is it so little?" Right. And there's a lot of interest in doing it, really hard to do, and I believe that's like one of the biggest opportunities in NFTs is just like Make make it really easy for people to do it, almost as easy as creating a Shopify store. And so that's like project idea one. Like we're gonna basically pay for your gas. We're gonna make it so you can deploy your own contract without ever thinking about it. You're gonna just click a couple of buttons and get a landing page that you can send to people and they can buy stuff digitally. Right. Okay. So we're gonna make it literally that easy. So that's, I think that's like accessibility really important. Um second one, which is the thing you were talking about, which is the PAX protocol, like, you know. There's building products and then there's building protocol. And protocols are just like, here's an API to go do this thing. And NBA Top Shot, I mean, probably one of the biggest digital products we've seen since Pokemon Go. I'll kind of call it that. Like that wave of like hype, you know, reaching some mass market, a lot lot of interest in it. Uh, But it's very close, right? I mean, you have to be an NBA player to get one. You have to kind of like be in the NBA. You got to play in this whole ecosystem. and you know, who knows what they're going to be worth in the long run, but in the short run, there's a lot of interest there, but only the NBA is doing it. You'll see the other sports teams do it. And, but the basic idea of creating a pack with some digital items in it, or potentially kind of linking to the real world, that's kind of what I got really excited about. And so we, you know, as part of NFT Labs, we created this PACS protocol, which is a protocol to create kind of a, you know, like a little loot box pack where you can put in digital items and you could put in an image, a sound clip for like, let's say your guys' podcast or, you know, kind of access like, hey, here's a ticket to a VIP event that I'm going to do here or here's a meet and greet or here's my private community. And so creators are going to find a lot of ways to use this if we develop that underneath foundation that they can kind of do all of this. And so, so, so Sam, does that make sense of how, so like, for example, what we would do is we would say, oh, cool. These guys built the infrastructure that makes it easy for us to do the following. We can create these little packs, meaning like a card pack or like a box, like a loot box, and basically put, it's a mystery box. You don't know what's inside. So you buy one, you open it up, and you're going to get one, you know, maybe you get the crap or maybe you get the most VIP thing where Sam calls you and coaches you on your business for an hour. And, and, right? and what's that called? What's the, what's the domain? So nftlabs.co is kind of like the main domain. And so ah, that's where, that's cool. one of their projects. And so... I think this is pretty cool because th- they're going to be able to get any like influence like us. And so there's one thing to do what Jack's doing, which is, and actually Jack did this. I don't know if you saw this uh, for but he initially was selling a specific NFT. Hey, buy this thing. 
And then he sold three packs with inside was a mystery NFT. You didn't know yeah, what it was going to be. Yeah, he made many six figures, I believe. Yeah, and like, like this mechanic, many, yeah. many games use these like loot box mechanics because it's fun. It's fun to go buy the thing and see, do you get the super rare valuable thing or did you get kind of the junk? And, you know, you, so you either get, you know, 60 cents on the dollar or you get $60 for every dollar you spent. And there's like this game of chance. And so what they're doing is they made a protocol where it's now easy for us to do that we can make all these packs we could put inside hey tickets to our live show in austin or you know you get to be put into our like private members group or here's a t-shirt you know with our you know here's a harvard shirt whatever um and so we could put any number of things just stuff them in the boxes and assign some probability and then it'll generate the packs for us which i think is pretty sweet yeah and uh you know like I really just think a lot about like what what's the value underneath it. Like we have to get to you know. I mean, art has value. You know, obviously the person buying it cares about it. But a lot of people look at that and go, wait, you know, these things are selling for like fifty million bucks plus, and like what's the, you know, it's just a JPEG underneath. But like, I mean, a VIP meet and greet when you guys do your roadshow, that's pretty cool actually. And I think a lot of people would be really excited about it. It sucks if you only auction that off to the you know person who has the most money, right? Like. And I think these packs give kind of the, you know, creators and influencers a way to interact with their fans kind of more broadly and say, all of you guys will get a chance. And here's kind of the things of it. By the way, you know, if there were only 10 VIP meet and greets, we'll make the third party marketplace like Top Shot or somebody wants to go spend 100 grand for it. By the way, you guys will earn a cut of that secondary sale. Plus somebody who got that if they didn't want it and they wanted to sell it, they can kind of do that. And so you can support both sides of the ecosystem. You can make it kind of fan friendly but then you can go kind of get a lot of value out of it too. And so, I don't know, I find creators really interesting because they're kind of an analogy to founders where, you know, I don't want to go work at a fan company. I mean, you you know, I, I made it through Twitch, but it was not, it's not the right <laughs> environment for me, right? Like it's not where I'm going to thrive. It's not where I'm going to be excited. Dude, and I, I think creators I have great, the same thing. I saw a great idea on this. Uh, the founder of Replit uh, uh, tweeted this out. He goes, there's a bunch of people who engineers who work at like fang companies they make great salaries and they kind of want they're kind of bored they want to go to a startup but the like the compensation difference is pretty big and maybe they have a family or they just you know it's just hard to walk away from a guaranteed you know 500 600,000 a year to go work for one fifth that or one fourth that at a startup that may or may not make it and he goes somebody should just create a fund that just bridges the difference so what it does is it basically says great we will um We'll even out that difference. So you get 300 instead of, let's say, 600. And it's an income share agreement. And but you pay us back with, your, with stock from the, from the startup. And so you give up a little bit of the stock from the startup to make back the cash difference. And in doing so, you would create a port. So you would, you would help more people who today can't leave the, the salary go to a startup. You'd help the startup not have to burn more money hiring that person. And in, you sit in between. And by providing that, you would get shares in pretty much every startup uh, that you wanted to provide this with. So if you say you thought these hundred startups are great, you could basically say, great, you're all eligible for this, this like kind of like income share agreement that we do, where if you hire somebody and they want a bit higher salary, we'll front that salary in exchange for stock um, uh, and, and hopefully bring more talent into the startup workforce. I thought that was a pretty clever idea, a way to get shares in all the companies that you want shares in that you can't go invest in directly. Yeah, that's really interesting. And uh, I don't know, I think people should just, you know, ideally, people can do the thing that they enjoy. They wake up every day, they're excited, whether they got to drive to work or work from home or wherever it is. Uh, if you can do that, like that, that's a big unlock in your life. And a lot of people don't get that opportunity. And you know, early on in my career, I just made those trades, like, 
kind of no matter how financially painful or, you know, you know, misguided it might have seemed at the time. But like, I just wanted to work on things that I was excited about. And when, I think you, the NFT when you went to space, App Lovin, when you went to App Lovin, you had another job offer, right? Uh, what was the difference there? Yeah. So I had met this guy, Jack Levin. I think he was like, you know, very early at Google. He was responsible for, um, you know, kind of a lot of Google's infrastructure tricks early on, like how they really scaled it. And some of the ways they win is really his responsibility. And he was working on this company. I think it was called YFrog. It was was like a photo sharing type thing. I think they had run another product. I think it was Photo Bucket, something like that. They had done some big stuff in the photo space. They were doing uh-huh. really well. They needed some engineers. Uh, I was an engineer at the time, and I could basically come in and learn a lot from this very technical person. Um, seemed really sharp. Uh, he asked me these questions that like got my brain going in a good way. Like, you know, I had very specific questions like, "How do you set up your desktop?" And like, my desktop is very particular. And he wanted to know every detail. And I was like, "Ah, this guy gets it. Like, this guy gets me <laughs> in the same way." Um, and then I met Adam and Adam was like very different, uh, obviously very impressive as just a CEO and a person, but like the conversation was different. The vibe was different. One was in like Los Gatos, one was in Palo Alto, just like a little bit of a different area. But when I, t- when I talked to Adam, I was like, oh, this guy, I could go to a baseball game with him. I could hang out with him. He seems cool. He seems very hungry. Uh, they don't have a clue what they're doing right now. Like, th- you know, they're shutting down an idea. They don't know what the next idea necessarily is going to be. I think there's going to be a lot more fun. The rate of learning is going to be really high. I might get more responsibility, but the really good, like kind of proper choice was going to this other job offer. And you know, Adam gave me two options. He gave me a higher salary and a low stock and a lower salary and a higher stock option. And I was like, I kind of just made the decision down to like, well, if I go with, you know, Adam, I need to take the low salary, move back in with my parents, like take the stock. Cause like, I'm going to be in it for the ride. But if I just kind of want to become an engineer and that's what I want my career to be, I'm going to go to this other company. I'm going to take the salary. I'm not worried about the equity necessarily, how big that is, but I'm just going to become a better engineer. And uh, I kind of picked the more unknown, less uh, polished option, uh, obviously worked out. So I feel great about it. But you took the you know, move in with the parents option. And yeah, I took the move in with the parents option. In an absurd way. <laughs> yeah, exactly. how, old are you, so, how old are you when you started uh, at App 11? Um, let's see, probably like 25, 26, no, 26. So moving yeah. at home wasn't the worst, but yeah, it wasn't good. No, that's actually just maybe old. a little bit. Yeah, 26. Probably. That's maybe just old enough where it's kind of like, all right, what are you doing? But it's definitely not inc- quite. inconvenient socially. <laughs> yeah. 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 When, okay, when you, move, when you move out, right? So you move out of your house and you move back in, it's not like a happy, like... <laughs> Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm winning high fives all around, right? Like, that's not yeah, the way you move back it's in. It's not like you had to move in with your wife or something like that. Yeah, I mean, that. that move in with your wife? There. What does that mean? Yeah. Like, like, sorry. Oh, your I wife mean, like, you, yeah, like, no, no, no. I mean, like, you, um, you're like in your 30s or like you have a family. Oh, like, oh, you know, like if you had you're like a little more established. Like, yeah, okay. Tw- yeah, 26 is old enough that it's still like, you can still fuck around and maybe figure it out, which you did. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and you so, know what I mean? You, 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 you know, can I think, still almost be a kid. Yeah, exactly. I, I think for me, it was just like, I know I wanted to do this. It sounded more fun. More fun is always good. Uh, you're going to be, you're going to wake up. You're going to be excited to go to work. It's not going to be a drag. Like, you know, I, I would tell Sean this all the time because we used to do Sunday night call, right? Where we would kind of think about the week. And it was like, my friends were always Sunday night. Like, oh man, work tomorrow. Like Sunday, like sucks. Like weekend's over. And I, and I always felt like, 
great. It's exciting. Like more stuff's going to happen. This week's going to be great. Like, and that's a big difference. If more people can do that, like that, that when, I think is a, when is we a huge those, deal. When we did those Sunday calls, I remember I'd always be like, oh, like, sorry, I got to Like I'm doing this thing with family or friends or whatever. I'm like, I got to go get on this call. And they're like, oh man, you have to do calls on Sunday nights. And I was like, I get to do calls. Like I'm, I chose this. I want to do this. I can't wait for Monday. We got to do it tonight. You know, that was our mindset. And like, you know, we didn't have as like spectacular of an outcome, but I definitely had like a spectacular time building that out and learning all the different stuff. So anyways, I, I think that's, that's, if you take away one thing, like maybe you didn't understand the technology, but like the meta lesson of Furcon to me is he always picked the more fun and interesting path, regardless of the financial thing. And then on the financial side, just made sure that it was a bet on himself and a bet on equity so that if the fun and interesting thing does pan out, you actually do get paid out of it. And I've seen him make that trade of like, I'll work harder, I'll earn less, I'll move back in with my parents, I'll, you know, all these things, right? Like he's willing to work t- three times as hard as long as it's three times as fun. And I think most people, at least from where I come from, they don't do that. They, when they make career choices, it's a rational, logical decision. And I think that gets you to a certain type of outcome. But if you hear these outcomes and you're like, how do I get some of that? I think you got to follow the irrational playbook a bit more. I mean, Sean, if you look across your journey at Monkey Inferno, I mean, you're a 24-year-old, pretty pretty green, right? Like, I, I think yeah. I saw your initial video interview that you had sent in uh, to the Monkey Inferno. And, like, uh, whether the dollar outcome was there or not, like, I would say the rate of learning, like, the growth difference for you. And I know for the, for myself, it's a massive difference. Like, I'm embarrassed at what I used to think about back then in terms of building compared to kind of after the journey. But you'd feel like that was like a thousand X payoff and the rest of your career is going to kind of unlock because of it, right? Like I, I would imagine you believe that, but I'm curious how you think about that journey. Yeah, hundred percent. I, I told the guys who set up our studios this and um, we, I mentioned this on a recent podcast, but I said they came, they, they flew out here to San Francisco. They were like staying in a Motel 6 type of thing. They're like, oh, I'm going to build this out. And, um, you know, they're 22, 23, 24 years old, something like that. And they had sent in a video, like kind of like a video interview to be like, Sam, Sean, choose us to like, w- like, we will help you guys out. We will come build your studio for you. They've like did a ballsy YouTube video and tweeting at us like nonstop shit. I used to do. I used to wait in parking lots to meet CEOs and investors I wanted to meet just so I could say, I've been here since 7am waiting in the parking lot for you to come out. Like, do you have five minutes of time? Right. I used to do all these stunts and they were doing a stunt to meet us. And I thought that was kind of interesting. And when they were there, I was like, uh, they kind of were like deferring to me too much. They were sort of like, it's kind of like too much respect. And I told them, I was like, dude, you, you kind of want what I have. I want what you have. I want that time back. And I want to be back where you guys are, where it's four friends living in a one bedroom apartment and you're making videos and you kind of like, why are we trying to be YouTubers? I don't know. It seems fun. Let's just do it. And then like, we think these guys have a cool podcast. Fuck it. Let's fly out and meet them and help them out with their studio. And we don't know what's, you know, there's no, there's nothing clearly in it for us, but like, we'll hop on that plane tomorrow and go make it happen. I told him, I said, that was by far the most fun time. Um, there was the highest rate of learning. And I remember at the time feeling like, oh man, like everything we do is so bootleg and ghetto. And like, but that was the right path actually for me, for a person like me who wanted what I wanted out of life. And I said, you're going to, I remember, you know, I went to Duke. Most of my friends went to med school, law school, or banking or consulting. And so every, you know, every weekend they would post like they're, you know, they're making six figures. They're posting themselves at a bar. They're like, like, I wasn't dating. I had no income. I was sleeping on an air mattress and, you know, my, my co-founder lived in my closet. Right. So it was like, you know, it was ghetto. And so I remember thinking, well, 
maybe, uh, you know, there was moments of doubt where I was like, maybe I should have gone the traditional path. Maybe I should have gone to med school after all. But, uh, but it was so fun. I couldn't, you know, I didn't, that was not a real conversation in my head. What I was telling these guys was, yo, uh, you're going to see your friends who are on the traditional path and they're going to look like they're way far ahead of you right now. And there's going to be a part of you who feels like you're locked, you're left behind. Uh, if you're like me, that's what I felt. Um, stay the path and just know that like, th- this is the first quarter. We're going to be long-term oriented. We're going to think about this like in a 10, 20 year time scale. Who do you want to be in 10, 20 years? And like, you're going to have a lot of fun now. And then your rewards are going to catch up 10, 20 years from now. And if you're okay with that trade of having more fun now and rewards that are a little backloaded, this is the right path. I wish somebody had just told me at that time, guys, this looks ghetto as hell, but you're on the right path. Um, we kind of just like, for better or worse, just stuck with it. And I want more people to stick with it when they're in that that mode. And you, you've done the same, traveling through Europe, playing poker to support yourself and like, you know, moving back in with your parents. It's not, a un, it sounds at the time, it feels uncommon, but it's actually quite common amongst people who end up successful in an entrepreneurial way. Yeah. Flip side is it's not easy, right? You're going to go the harder path. Like, you know, I didn't, I didn't have, I don't have a college degree. I didn't get that. A lot of people ask me, Hey, should I go to college? Like I have these other things going on and you know, like you don't have to, you can learn on your own, especially now, but um, it's definitely going to be a harder path. Don't expect linear returns where if I put in a year of work, I get a, a year of kind of success. And then I put in five years of work, I get five years of success. It might be nothing for a long time and you might kind of get it in the end, but I don't know. The journey is very exciting. Like that, that's, that to me is what matters. Cause that's what you're going to do every day. You're going to wake up every day and you're going to go do this thing. Are you excited about that? And, and that's kind of like critical. Yeah. Thank you, dude. I always take a lot of notes. I'm taking notes now, whenever you come, I, uh, I'm excited for your success. That's so cool. I, um, thought app loving was like this huge thing whenever it was supposed to sell a year or whatever, a few years ago now. And then now seeing what it is now, I'm like, Oh my gosh, that's, that's, it's, it's blew my expectations. I'm sure it is uh, yours as well. So congratulations. That's pretty badass. And what you're building is awesome. Founders Inc. That's badass. Yeah. Sweet. No, I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, no, this has been fun. Uh, I always like hearing you guys. So it's kind of fun to be on as well. And where do people, uh, shoot the shit a little where bit. do people find you? Founders, uh, F.Inc. or founders.inc? Yeah. F.inc. Uh, that's the website. And so that's the domain. Uh, you can find me on Twitter, Furcon R, uh, F U R Q A N R. So, Furcon, thanks for coming. Uh-huh. Yeah. I feel like I can rule the world. I know I could be what I want to. Uh, I put my all in it like no days off. On the road, let's travel, never looking back. Like- oh, yeah.